Welcome to the Meltzone Podcast. This is episode 60. I'm Tom. And I'm Stefan. And on today's episode, we talk about PLA and PETG failures over time. Did you ever have a roll of PLA that you opened up just to find that it crumbled? Maybe you find out why. Um, on other news, Formlabs launches its new and improved SLS 3D printer, the Fuse OnePlus, which sounded interesting for me because they are talking about wasteless 3D printing um, and you don't have to throw away part of the already used plastic powder, um, which by, might be nice for your uh yeah economically and ecologically in the end um and then yeah bamboo labs finally released their bamboo slicer sauce uh even before they shipped the first backer units to uh yeah the kickstarter backers which is a good move in from them that is great to see indeed uh what i've been obsessing over is robots DIY robots, the tools that we now have to build them and how 3D printing could tie into that, um, not just for manufacturing, but also for the tools and hardware that you can build stuff from. So I nerd out about that for a while. Um, then we talk about uh, E3D's Obsidian and the weather is finally going to happen. It is apparently going to happen, but do you still care? There's also a new service on the horizon. Um, it's called Slowflix. STLflix, uh, a STL subscription service. Uh, implications to that are more than what it looks like on the surface. And also we answer a question, as we always do if you send them in uh, through Twitter at The Meltzone, uh, is uh, PHA filaments. And the all PHA from, from Colorfab it was, uh, how that works out, Stefan has tried it, and he reports on how that filament is special and what it does better or worse than others. How sweaty are you today, Stefan? Not that sweaty, to be honest. Uh, I, I did the like e ecological and even economical uh, air conditioning and I just vented our whole house uh, during the night and it's very comfortable in here currently. Okay. Just 23 degrees. That's actually pretty good. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, poor, poor folks in the UK. Sweating like 35, 40 degrees, and they're they're not used to it, right? They usually they they get a nice breeze from the ocean, and it's just nice and cool. Yeah. But yeah, and their houses are not properly insulated. So if yeah. I vent our house through the night, and even the walls cool down a bit, uh, like the half of a meter of insulation I have, I have around me helps. Uh, yeah, getting the or, or keeping that heat outside. But yeah, I'm doing well. I don't have any AC, but but you finally have some. Oh yeah, but I, I do have some in, in the studio here now, and it is working wonderfully. Um, and I've I've already tweeted about this because of course people are going to say, ah, AC. I can't you just open the windows at night? Um, yes, I, I can. I can open the the gate at night and let some fresh air in. And I do do that if I'm here late. Um, but yeah, this building is, is pretty well insulated. Um, yeah, solar on the roof, which isn't mine, it's the landlord's. But yeah, also, I guess, ecologically responsible and I'm not using it much. It's just like the little little extra tip when it's just a bit uncomfortable to work where you move and you start sweating and just just taking the edge off. Yeah. So, And you said you set it to like 26 degrees, which is... yeah. It's the right temperature for your shirt. 
<laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Maybe maybe if I, if I said it a bit uh, harder, maybe it's ironed down and the, just the creases come out. <laughs> um, yeah, no, these these um, these are all TCL units. I have, I have similar ones at home. Uh, you set them to twenty five and it's comfortable, and you set them to twenty six and it's a bit it's still comfortable, but it's still a bit warmer. Yeah. These are. But the thing is, you have to reliable. work in the office, and if it's just too hot you're not efficient yeah absolutely so i totally understand it absolutely before i got this thing it was it was really not i mean i, I had to do like physical work um installing electrical and stuff and it was just unbearable so yeah definitely worth it and especially compared to your basement that you used before <laughs> where you had a constant like 20 degrees uh, actually it was it was quite a bit colder than that so year round it was like 17 18 for the most time <laughs> Um, which brought along with it some interesting issues. Um, 3D printing, PLA, I mean, likes cold temperatures, sure. Uh, ABS doesn't so much. So um, I always had ABS in an enclosure, and I still do that here at the studio. But you can actually print ABS without enclosure relatively well here. Um, do you have the $700 Prusa? No, <laughs> I, I, do, I don't. I don't. <laughs> um, I do have a Boxamo enclosure, which also isn't cheap. Um, yeah. And I've got the, the enclosure from the Snapmaker, which yeah. is intended for laser cutting, but yeah. I guess it works for printing too. Um, but the other thing is cameras overheat. I've never had that before. My, my A7S III, um, was it during a live? I think it was during a live stream even, um, <laughs> where, where all of a sudden the camera went blank and I was like, okay. <laughs> what's, what's up now? Uh, mm and because I have the teleprompter, which has um, the like a sheet of black cloth in the back, um, just to to make sure I'm not looking into a bright background and I can actually mm -hmm. read the text, um, I had that over the camera. The camera was choking. So, <laughs> yeah, I've never had that camera overheat, and now it did. I've already got it set to like the high temperature, but still not enough. So, okay. yeah, it it's at a certain temperature. It is just it it becomes physically impossible for me to do my job. So yeah interesting yeah may maybe talking about too low too low of a temperature um i haven't been doing like resin printing seriously for the last two years but i always had the problem that when i did resin printing down in my basement where it's also like constantly around 17 degrees celsius resin printing doesn't properly work at that temperature yeah the resin is too thick it's too thick and the polymerization takes too long yeah. and uh, I had um, a ceramic heating unit from uh, Piopoli where I even built like a styrofoam enclosure around the machine but it still wasn't working that well uh, so I hope now that like in the new studio it's going to be it's going to be way easier yeah the thing is most which which is actually interesting to observe because most stuff we use is optimized to work at normal temperatures so like the 10 to 30 degrees maybe is like what most stuff is going to work at um and stuff like resins yeah they're engineered to have the correct properties at those temperatures um you you could in the past see that with lcd screens where if you have a cold screen um it's actually noticeable on the, on the prusa screens too mm -hmm. um where if it's too cold it's going to take like five seconds for the screen to transition from one menu to the next one where it slowly yeah. fades in and out uh lithium batteries 
right? They, they don't work well when they're cold. They don't work well when they're hot. They really work well at normal temperatures. And it's, it's fascinating how much, depends on, uh, how much stuff depends on, on being run in the correct temperature. Yeah. We're in a, at just a normal temperature, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's how it is. So <laughs> you, you have now, now the uh, automatic solution to keep it kind of at normal temperatures. I still need to do, do it the manual way. I already told you that I had 32 degrees last night in the yeah. studio, which is just unbearable. But yeah, installed like window shades this morning. And I really hope that uh, that's going to help me block out the direct sunlight, which is, which is getting in there. Um, usually at night for two, three, four hours, which is just heating yeah. everything up. Same here, same here in the office. Um, speaking of heat, have you ever had a PTG temper on you? Have you ever experienced that? So, I would have thought since PTG is is well, the glycol helps quite a bit that it doesn't crystallize anymore because PET is, is very crystalline and PTG makes it very amorphous uh, that you can't that's, there aren't a lot of things that change uh, when it's, it's getting too warm you will reduce the uh, internal stresses of the part but I would not have suspected that you change uh, its properties but tell me more Okay, I, I so I just looked up um, the exact material so um, here's the here's the anecdote on on PET <laughs> to be precise I guess um, failing on me so when my dad and me uh, we took our, our bike tour across the Alps we had the um, the phone months I have have I told this story I before ha I have seen well I have seen the pictures on, on on Twitter years back okay okay so um, maybe maybe I'll just go through it quickly again. Um, we went across the Alps. I printed a phone mount that where the, the phone just like mm. clips in um, and I mounted it to my stem, to my stem cap um, or fork cap. I don't know what, what that thing is called. Just put it down there. Perfect solution. Had my sat nav, my, my pulse uh, meter, Bluetooth thing um, hooked up there. Worked amazingly. We arrived in... Where did we go? Verona? Uh, no idea. Um, somewhere in that area, and we took a day. Uh, we we took one day break. Um, we had the, the the bike stored away, and then when we left, we loaded the bikes up on the bike rack on the on the back of the car. And I think just in that time um, of being out in the sun for like two or three hours and at the back of a, a car um, on the side of the street, the parts got hot enough to temper. So the next time I tried inserting my phone into that mount, mm -hmm. it immediately snapped. Like the the, the, okay. the wings that that kind of hold mm -hmm. in the phone <coughs> immediately cracked um, down okay. at the at the base, and it was it was day and night um, because, like I said, it it worked amazingly well the entire time, the entire trip, and then as soon as they were on that bike rack um, and out in the sun for for a bit too long. Uh, they they change their properties from being ductile to being brittle. Okay. Now the material that I printed this in uh, was E3D Edge, if I remember correctly. Okay. And E3D Edge is not a PTG. I mean, it's Edge. It's a, it's a whatever brand name material, whatever they, they want to put in there. They're saying it is PET slash copolyester blend with mm -hmm. additives. So 
I don't know. I, I guess I should retry and recreate that. Um, but your point with, with the glycol additive kind of makes sense, yeah. Uh, so I, I think there are two things. Um, for once, I would not have sus suspected that you get any like recrystallization of the material due to like the more complex polymer chain due to the glycol modification. Um, though on the other side, PET is a very crystalline material and one of the reasons why we usually don't or because there and why there are barely any PET materials around because it's quite hard to print depending on the conditions uh, you can have a part that's partly crystalline partly amorphous and things like that and um, the crystallization of course makes it um, a bit more brittle the question is if your if you the edge PET something modified um, might also just have hydrolyzed so if the heat and maybe moisture in the material or moisture on just in the surrounding might have resulted in the polymer chains to break down but is that something that can happen without the polymer being well, molten down is yes it? of course okay so yeah. that, that, that and, can and PETG so PETG is is I wouldn't say well known but PETG does have the problem of um, hydrolyzation after you print it apart so that can even happen after okay. after printing it and just being in a humid and maybe elevated temperature environment huh, that, that's interesting I mean the, the way that, that hydrolyzation has been explained to me once was that Uh, you basically get little this is probably very much simplified oversimplified you get little puffs of smoke um, on a microscopic level and they physically rip apart the polymer chains and you end up with a material that is still rigid but not strong because the chains are, are shorter and they don't interlock that well anymore mm -hmm. so the, 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 the what, what, what I think as a result of that is you need at least 100 degrees um, for that smoke puffing or, or steam puffiness uh, to, yeah. to happen it's kind of like popcorn um, yeah popcorn <laughs> yeah um, I, I hope I'm not wrong there but I'm quite sure that uh, yeah PETG is is susceptible to exactly that and then there are um, if you have a semi-crystalline material like PLA for example or, or other ones there's also a post-crystallization behavior so You print it apart, but it can still happen that after a while the degree of crystallinity, uh, degree of crystallinity increases and therefore also material properties change, um, which can make a part become brittle over time. Hmm. The question I'm, I have been asking myself for ages, and we have talked about that to Alex from from protopasta when we were at MERV 2019 why and I think that was more a problem when we still had three millimeter filament um, why yeah. are there some rolls of material that just crumble apart after a while or if when you take them out of a um, out of, of out of their bag I had that happen a ton to me when I still used cheap Yeah, uh, PLA filament and especially two point yeah three millimeter filament. But I I think I haven't seen something like that for 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 years anymore. 
the 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 I mean the context that that I know that problem from is from the BCN three D machines, um, from the Sigma or whatever, or the D twenty five I think is the newest one, um, because they have the spools left and right of the print platform, and then they have a reverse Bowden tube essentially um, going down through the base of the printer. It comes out the back of the machine. Yeah. Then you have your extruders in the back, and then you have Bowden tubes that go all the way up yeah. again. And in that uh, reverse Bowden, for the most part, that's where you're going to see filament break and crumble um, if you leave it in there for a while. So I think there's there's been some investigation by someone at some point. It's not... <laughs> I'm I'm just going off of faint memories here, mm. um, but I believe some some part of that was uh, humidity in the filament as well. And that that plays a role in just the filament being under stress in those mm. bent Bowden tubes, reverse yeah. Bowden tubes. Um, plus humidity changes how how the material works and 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 how the material degrades, mm-hmm. and it just cracks. And I've definitely yep. had that happen too, where you, just, you get a fresh a fresh roll of PLA, you open up the box, and it's just like, well, what, what am I supposed to do with these 20, 20 centimeter long filament bits? Like, that's useless. 3D, 3D printing pen. Yeah, uh, sure. Re- resell them. Like, <laughs> Euro 50 a pop. Perfect. Yeah. But yeah. But last time you remember that happening, was that with 1.75 millimeter filament or? Uh, Sigma is all 2.85. So, yeah. So the thing is, um, I think that's that's partly due to uh, material creep. And when you bend a three millimeter filament by the same amount compared to a 1.75 millimeter filament, the bending stress will be significantly higher on the three millimeter filament due to the yeah. bending modulus or section modulus. Yeah, of, if you if you bend it along the same radius, essentially. Exactly. Um, then you're gonna you have tr- you introduce more stresses in the exactly. thicker materials, so they are more prone to, for example, creep failure. If they are constantly under that that bending load, and at some point they just snap. Yeah. And that's not something that you would. Sorry for microphones clipping here, by the way. Um, that's not something that you. I, is Skype messing mis- with my audio settings again? <sighs> Okay, um, the, the filament snapping is not something you would expect from a creep failure because, you know, creep, plastic creep is, um, you know, you, you would expect the material to yield over time and just to deform, but you wouldn't expect it to crack. Um, but apparently that, that can happen. Um, both things can happen due, um, due to material creep. Um, there is a plastic deformation that's happening even though you are maybe not over the plastic limit but uh depending on the material and everything is my audio now also quieter <laughs> no um, uh, for, for everyone wondering we switched to skype for recording the video here and skype likes to mess with audio settings um <laughs> And we're, we're just, we've been battling this for the first couple of episodes, then we, we wiped everything off of the systems, and now we, we decided to try Skype again, and we're having issues again, like Skype. Mm. <laughs> so, right. the thing is, but let me turn this back up again. You, you see the levels, and if the levels are yeah, yeah. at the right height. So, the thing is, uh, I think both, uh, both can happen, and depending on the mode the material is loaded, and the height of the load in the material both things can happen uh, plastic deformation even though you're not above the plastic limit 
and also just like failure yeah. of the material. And in fact, yeah. the uh, the PLA failure, the, the the spools cracking while they're still fresh or in the um, in the sigma. That's something that happens pretty much exclusively with PLA. Um, that failure mode has been observed, I think, since the earliest days of open source 3D printing. So the cells Mendel, going going way back here, uh, the cells Mendel with its triangular frame structure had those top pieces where you had the motors, the Z-axis motors mounted. They used mm -hmm. to be mounted at the top. And they had a clamp on the side um, that clamped the rod, the, the 8mm rod for the Z-axis. And if I remember correctly, that clamp, because of the way it was designed, would snap over time if you printed it from PLA. Um, so because that, that, you know, you were deforming the material, you were putting stresses on that material, um, you would get that, that yield failure um, mm -hmm. at some point. And yeah, the, the recommendation was don't print this with PLA because it's going to snap at some point. Okay. It seems to have become less of an issue these days um possibly because we're using a different blend or a different grade of pla um i i don't know the exact name but there there's the the, the the pla that was used back then is a different one that is being used now even without additives or anything it's mm -hmm. just a different nature works grade pla um so that that might actually have resolved that um for the majority of cases yeah interesting yeah I'm still, I still haven't f fully finished my material creep tests, but it is definitely something uh, you need to consider for some materials. Even though, from from my experience, I did not have a ton of even parts under stress, PLA parts that creeped over time. If it wasn't, if they weren't in a like a hot environment. Yeah, yeah. I mean, then, then all, what's it called? All, all the odds are off yeah. uh, for PLA standing up to, to any sort of load. But up to like 25, 30 degrees Celsius, PLA worked really well for my applications. I still have my five or six-year-old PLA CNC router downstairs. I still have my universal test machine I printed yeah. five years ago out of PLA. Still all of the parts doing fine. Yeah, Nothing it, deformed, even though they're loaded all the time. And PLA, I don't know where it got that, that bad rep, but PLA is actually one of the strongest and most rigid materials you can print with. Yes. If, you, if you don't care about um, like heat resistance, which can be an issue if you have like um, anything that, that rubs. Um, mm -hmm. If you generate heat there, yeah, you're going to have an issue. But if it's just static mechanical parts, PLA yeah. is a fantastic choice for that. Yes. All right. <laughs> Talking about different materials and different processes, let's let's quickly talk about Formlabs upgraded SLS 3D printer, the Fuse One Plus. But before that, this episode is sponsored by Private Internet Access. Private Internet Access provides a VPN service that does two things. It adds an extra layer of encryption to all the data your computer or smartphone sends through the internet, and it masks your physical location by letting you appear as if you were browsing the internet from another country, or even from any specific US state. Pia has an easy-to-use app and never collects or stores your data. Internet security has greatly improved over the last years, meaning that hackers, government entities, or even your internet and Wi-Fi provider 
are having a harder time reading along or manipulating what you're seeing on the internet. Still, most of the metadata, including which sites and services that you visit and use, is still unencrypted and therefore an open book for anyone snooping uh, yeah, in on your connection. PIAs, VPN wraps all of that insecure information in a thick additional layer and tunnels it to one of their secure data centers. Where VPN is also really useful though is when you want to change where your traffic originates from. Uh, sometimes prices change depending on where you access sites from. Uh, so it's worth checking from a different location if you can get a better deal somewhere. Also, lots of content is now restricted to certain regions, but with Pia, you can appear as if you were in an entirely different region. They now have a server in each of the 50 US states and in a total of over 80 countries around the world. I hear that being able to pick a specific US state is particularly important for being able to watch sporting events there. Yeah, so yeah, don't get locked out of your favorite broadcast or streaming service and also add a layer or an additional layer of encryption and anonymity. And add a layer of encryption and anonymity. Anonymity, it's a hard word for me to say, but it's easy with if you want to try them at privateinternetaccess.com slash themeltzone, you'll get 82% off the three-year month. If you try them out at privateinternetaccess.com slash themeltzone, you'll get 82% off and three months for free with a two-year plan, coming in at only $2.11 per month. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee and 24-7 live chat support. Again, that's privateinternetaccess.com slash themeltzone. And thanks to PIA for sponsoring this episode. Wow, you'll never imagine how many tries that took us. <laughs> I, I, I know how many tries I usually need for my voiceovers. So <laughs> that wasn't oh. really that. Oh, sorry. Uh, th thanks to PIA for sticking through this. <laughs> <laughs> the Fuse One Plus, uh, which I added to the show notes because... I find SLS, SLS 3D printing, so um, where you melt plastic powder with a laser, very interesting. And I see a ton of applications for the process where you want to have nicer or more professionally looking parts, but don't go all the way to injection molding. So yeah, yeah. SLS 3D printing, uh, the Fuse 1 got upgraded by Formlabs. Yeah. It now features a 30-watt laser instead of a 10-watt laser. Um, but the thing that I found really interesting, so there, there are two things I would like to talk about. Um, usually when you're doing SLS 3D printing, your parts are totally or completely under powder all of the time, and you're just melting the material in the locations where you want to have a part in the end. Yeah, the problem so you, is... You, you, start with, you start with your powder bed, or maybe do you start yeah. with a platform that you, that you send to your parts to... Not necessarily. You, oh, I'm not sure. Okay. I think you're starting with a uh, with a powder bed. Okay. So you you melt down basically the first layer in that powder bed. Um, you have a scraper that scrapes over a, f a thin, fresh layer of powder over that part, and then the laser goes over that area again and remelts or melts melts parts of that fresh layer, and it fuses to the existing part. Um, rinse and repeat so you always have like a consistent surface level um, which means all your parts are always going to be perfectly supported unless you get like warping and, and that sort of stuff um, your parts are always supported but you always have like the full 
powder bed. You always use the entire volume of, of powder. Yeah. So, but the problem is, so in the end, you basically take a vacuum and vacuum away all of the unsintered powder. But the problem usually with SLS processes is that you can't reuse that already used material completely. So when you're starting a new print job, um, you can't only add uh, like already used material. You need to add at least like 50% of virgin material just uh, to keep the process consistent and the material properties running well. I don't know what happens when you really just reuse powder over and over again if, if the process itself doesn't work or if the parts just crumble apart. But usually in the past, uh, you always had to add 50% virgin powder. So over time, you accumulated quite a bit of already used powder you, you that you can't use anymore. Yeah, and, and, and used powder in this case doesn't mean like it has been, you know, your printed parts that would be used. No, no, it is just the powder that is around the parts that is has not seen any laser interaction that has not been sent into a part. It has just been there in a print. Yeah. So all that powder degrades. My understanding is that is because you actually, you, you're keeping your entire build volume and all the powder in there at a temperature like right below where it fuses. Mm. Um, and so the, the entire build volume is heated. And then just that last bit of pushing it over the edge to, to where it actually fuses together, you add that energy with the laser. So yep. that basically means you don't have to have a, a 500 watt laser in there. It's enough where it used to be enough to have a 10 watt laser or now a 30 watt one um, to just melt those parts together. Yep. And yeah, by, by, by continuously having the powder exposed to those high temperatures just below the melting point does degrade them. Yeah. So in the past, Formlabs already promoted their machine uh, that they have a more efficient process. And I think you only had to add 30 to 40% virgin powder. But with their new machine, they're saying uh, that they can do wasteless printing and don't and you don't have well, you can reuse your powder over and over again, which I f find really interesting on the one hand, economically, but also ecologically, because you don't have to throw that, yep. that stuff away anymore. And since the material is expensive and I need to check the Formlab side, how much it really is, but like one kilo of nylon powder is usually a hundred or used to be around 150 bucks. So yeah. And it's not that the, the material, like the base polymer is expensive by itself. It is because it needs to be a very consistent um, granulate size or powder size um, for the process to work at all. I think that's also part of the problem why it degrades is because, yeah, you keep it just below that fusion temperature, but mm -hmm. sometimes the particles do fuse together and mm -hmm. you end up with like an, an inconsistent coarser powder. Um, so you, you need so, to add fresh stuff. So what do you still did with the old machines and, and the conventional machines and probably also the formlabs machines is that you sieve the material and all of those particles that have already um, agglomerated so so just fused together they are removed by the sieving process and so there will still be at least a bit of material that you throw away in the end but um, from my understanding and I would really like to get details on that but i unfortunately didn't didn't really find anything on the formlab side um but 
now they're saying that all the material that goes through the sieve can be reused. And I just checked um, six kilos of nylon um, powder is a thousand bucks. Yeah. Oh, so. but that's that's the carbon fiber reinforced one. Sorry. Okay. Okay. The, just the nylon 12 uh, powder is 600 bucks for six kilos. So 100 yeah. euros or yeah. 100 dollars per kilo. Which, as always, in a professional environment where you're saving tons of money by using yeah. an SLA print in the first place, uh, SLA, SLS, <laughs> to in the first place, um, that, I mean, it's, you're saving so much more than what your, um, your investment in, in powder costs. But at yeah. some point, it's like, hey, this is just the standard. This is how we make parts now. And of course, yeah. then you can go in and say, hey, we're not throwing away half of the powder with every yeah, print. Yeah, I find that, that interesting because that's, now motivates competitors to also like improve their process and reduce the amount of like wasted material which i find very good because uh 3d printing is usually promoted also that it's ecologic because you don't like machine material away that you either throw away or have to recycle in any way but uh yeah that process especially with a very fine like plastic powder that is already microplastics um, helping to reduce that helping to reduce the amount that you have to discard in, in some way is a good step i hope i'm right here um, that's how i understood the article from formlabs if anyone else has any information um, on that i would be really interested but yeah, that was one thing. The other thing was, um, so when I saw the Fuse 1 the first time at Formlabs uh, at, at Form Next four or five years ago, it was promoted at a price tag of around uh, of 10,000 grand. And ten I grand. thought... Not, not ten, yeah. Ten, sorry, Things. 10 grand, not 10,000 grand. <laughs> 10 grand. Um, and I thought, okay, that's the end of those other cheaper SLS manufacturers like um, Sinterit and Sintratec, which at that time sold for around 5,000 bucks, something like in that direction. Um, I think when the, S uh, when the Fuse 1 finally released, it was 15 or 16 grand for the printer itself. And then you have the rework station, which is probably uh, around another... 5,000 bucks yeah. or something like that. Um, but now the new machine is 27, 28? Uh, I just had the price open here. Uh, 28. 28 grand. So 20,000 US dollars, uh, 28,000 US dollars for the printer itself. And uh, when you purchase also all of the accessories like the um, depowdering station and the sieving station, it sets you back 40,000 US dollars. So quite substantial and yeah. the interesting thing i found here is that uh well they increased their price quite a bit um i'm asking myself if that also shifts like their their target audience but um in the end we now have more or less three three price ranges of sls3 printers we have the really cheap ones, cheap for SLS 3D printers like the Sintratec and Sintrit, which sell probably uh, below 10,000 10, US dollars. Then we have the Fuse, which is 30 to 40,000 US dollars. 
um, for the whole yep. system. And then we have the really expensive ones, like the one for, uh, ones from EOS that start at a hundred or hundred and fifty thousand US dollars and go all the way up to f half a million. Um, so yeah, the, the question is really who does the Fuse one compete with? Uh, because honestly, I mean, thirty grand for a printer. That's expensive, but given how they position themselves and like Formlabs to me isn't a DIY maker, you're responsible for the machine approach, um, but it's something more along the lines of a pro machine where you have uh, basically a, a guaranteed recipe of, you know, typical slicer machine material uh, post-processing that's all from one vendor. And it's like, hey, you follow our guidelines, mm -hmm. you use our materials, you're going to have a great result and if not you can call us and we're going to we're going to be uh, we are going to be responsible for this and it's not you who are going to be responsible which is something that you know companies love they don't want to be responsible for tweaking mm -hmm. machines and stuff so at that point i think the, the the fuse is a fantastic deal and when you brought this up before the show and you were like hey yeah it was like 10 grand i was like are you serious that's that's a fantastic deal it used to mm -hmm. be 10 grand uh and at 30 grand still great I think, well, um, I think there's still a huge market for that machine because even at 40,000 bucks, which which sounds horribly expensive for like the home gamer, for a business that can use that for either prototyping or even making uh, like production parts, just, just look at all of the extruders and everything that Bontag is making. All of those parts, they're not yeah. injection molded. They're all SLS 3D printed. Um, I don't know if they're doing that in-house. I Yes, they are doing that. They have outsourced that to somebody who maybe has no a higher idea, volume. Yeah, the the parts um, look the parts look really great, and they work fantastically well for them. Yeah, yeah, and for like a, a mid-sized production, it's it's very reasonable. And the the reason why Formlabs always shined is yeah, if if you're staying in their ecosystem, it works quite well. And with ecosystem, I'm also talking about the software side. So like the You, you're not um, getting much of a choice there, to be honest. You are not getting yeah. much of a choice, but the thing is, the only choice that you're having, it comes with the machine, It you don't pay any service fees or something yeah. like that, and it works. I can give, I think, preform uh, to any of my colleagues at work, uh, and probably even to my wife and she is able to to print parts parts with that because yeah. it does everything automatically it guides you through the process it doesn't require require a lot of training and that is worth a ton in the end if i just think about um for example materialized magics which might be used for other machines which is like a professional tool for stl so working on, on stl files and for example creating supports for uh, different processes um the software itself is probably already around like 50 grand and then you are paying another it's probably not 50 grand it's it's 20 30 grand depending on the but it's a it's a vendor independent software right it's vendor independent okay. but then you also need to add a a service fee on that every year so mm. wartung uh that's which yeah. uh God, I'm, I'm pouring coffee over myself, um, which probably Formlabs is going to sell you as well. Just, just to they, be fair, yeah, yeah, they probably do. And if you're a business, you want to have a service contract. Be right back. If, sorry, <laughs> I got to get some coffee. You, um, you entertain the audience for a minute. Yeah, I try to entertain the audience while you 
get rid of your uh, your coffee stains. So the thing is, if you're if you are a company, it is very important for you that you usually have a service contract because if something goes wrong with the machine, you are you don't have to take care of that yourself, uh, and the vendor usually does that or the service provider and. Um, you outsource basically that risk. So, like from my experience, companies usually do that. Does that, do that, and of course, Formlabs will be will be doing that as well. But um, yeah, it's even though it's now like two and a half times more expensive than it used to be right in the beginning, where you were able to make pre-orders. I think it's it's still reasonably reasonably priced and caters to an audience that is professional but doesn't want to spend 150,000 bucks on an EOS machine. Yeah. Is the original Fuse still going to be available? Do you know about that? Um they currently have both of them in their shop. And okay. I guess it does make sense that they still have both um due to the price tag. <laughs> they also only just want to sell their their uh, remaining uh inventory. But also with the laser upgrade and everything, mm, the cheaper version is maybe a bit slower and things like that, but it's also cheaper. So yeah, in the well, end, customers can choose. Well, the, the, the biggest point to me, I think, is really the reusability. It's do I pay a bit more upfront and then save on material as mm -hmm. I go because I'm going to have to throw away less of the material I buy? Or... Do I go with a cheaper option because I'm not going to be printing as much because I know I will not recoup that extra cost mm -hmm. um, from the material that I might save? Um, and that yeah. is exactly what um, what Formaps was saying on their website where they're comparing the Fuse and the Fuse One Plus, where they're saying, "Hey, the um, what does it say? The Fuse One Plus is a record-breaking uh, fast SLS 3D printer uh, for 24-hour." operation um, for internal 24-hour uh, 3d printing and the other one is just like ah we're it's reliable yeah. so yeah maybe maybe lastly how do they how do they do the um wasteless 3d printing um on the website it kind of hints to it um it's saying they are flooding the build environment not just with air um which typically is, with is, argon. is being filtered yeah or nitrogen the Fuse One Plus is now also um, filling it with an inert gas. Yeah. So that is that is one of the big things with mm. the Fuse One Plus. I could also imagine that they are lowering the heating temperature of just the um, the entire build volume just by a bit to reduce the degradation, mm. um, and they make up with that. Uh, they make up for that with the stronger laser. But oh. that is just speculation. Yeah. I don't know. It's interesting. Um, it's not something that many of us probably have the opportunity to play with, but um, I'm happy to see that it does become more accessible. And But I still think that this won't be something for the home gamer in, in the near future, just due to the fact that working with those powders is nasty. It's, it's even nastier than working with resins, trust yeah, me. Yeah, but... Even though... Don't underestimate. I mean, some people, I don't know, if they have some specialty use case, um, they might buy one of them. It's happened before with, like, other pro-level machines. Yeah, but then you're usually, like, a small business. 
or you have too much money. Oh yeah, that, that, I mean yeah. that, that that's what I'm referring to. Yeah, those people exist. Maybe maybe I need to correct myself here a little bit. Um, so also what they're doing with like their enclosed powder volume that you then put into the uh, depowdering table, they try to minimize the waste as as much as possible and that is very important because the the fine powder is nasty um and maybe it is even not that nasty as as resin 3d printing i don't know (laughs) Uh, it's on a different level but in the words of a uh, of a living legend don't breathe this yeah (laughs) as always Uh, okay then some good news um or good news or I don't know, it's neutral news. Things are happening as they should with Bamboo Labs and the release of the Bamboo Studio source code. Um, there was a bit of a, of a shitstorm um, with Bamboo Labs not releasing uh, their slices source code yet. Even though with GPL, AGPL based code, it is based on Prusa Slicer, they are technically required to provide the source code source code on request to people who received the uh, binary yeah which is like very narrow case and i guess they they didn't have anything public yet um when they shipped the first machines to you and others um you guys got the software but you did not get the source code um but they have now fixed that if too late but they have fixed it uh, and they have released the entire bamboo studio i think that the first talks were just about hey we're going to release the slicer core but they've released the entire studio thing um it's on github it is the most recent version from what i've read it's actually a newer version than they've shipped uh, in binaries yet and i i guess we can be happy now <laughs> we can, we can be more happy yeah so it's it's good that they did it and um i hope this opens up the opportunity to take some of the features that they implemented and implement them into prusa slicer for example i don't know um step format support right which is i think they still do triangulation at the end to uh, for slicing but i actually tried it out with my version of bamboo slicer yeah you can just drag and drop uh, a step file in there which is kind of nice um doesn't sound like too hard to implement um so i i can see that coming to other slices as well yeah i am not sure if super slicer maybe already might be already supporting that but this is something which might be cool for like people that usually work in cat software and too often even if i'm at expos and and see very professionally made part sometimes people just save their stl with a two cores of a resolution and you see all of the triangulation on those beautiful parts and it's yeah it just doesn't need to need to be that way so um and the 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 point that you're making with like hey does it really need to translate it into a triangulated mesh first before it, it takes the pristine um step file and pushes it into the slicer i think at some point it, it doesn't really matter um <laughs> because unless you're implementing arcs um mm-hmm. and splines and other shapes that the printer can reproduce by itself without relying on mm-hmm. individual points it's you know you, you export it or you, you convert it with high enough of a resolution and you're not going to be able to tell any difference so 
It also supports ARCs, so uh, G2, G3. Super Slicer has also already supporting that for quite a while, um, okay, if but I remember is it, correctly. Is it just reconstruction from an STL to an ARC? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I'm not sure how Bamboo Studio does it, but I would suspect that they are converting the step file to an SDL, working with that for slicing, and then run the procedure over the already generated G-code and find for segments that they can replace with a G2, G3. So your, argu your argument that, of course, yeah, just increase the resolution as, as much as possible is, of course, an option. Um, the, the thing is, if you have a complex model and save that with a too high of a resolution, your STL file is going to be just insanely big for no real reason. True. Um, um, step is uh, way more efficient in that regard. Yeah. Um, the, the, the problem really isn't the, the STL file becoming too big. The problem is the G-code becoming too big and bogging down your printer firmware. Exactly. Um, but we have a solution for that. It's um, slices now have a or have had for a while a resolution setting where any segments smaller than I don't know tenth of a millimeter or whatever yeah. um, just get stripped out and connected to the other to to, to the one previous and, and next one. So that works, but it also comes with the problem, and I have seen that on parts where I have actually tested that is um, the algorithm is fine for one layer. But if the layer below, so the merging doesn't match up with the merging that you did on the uh, yeah. layer above, you can see slight layer changes. Or yeah, so it's layer it's, changes or shifts. It's different faceting on mm -hmm. each layer where the segments meet. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. If you set that, if you set the uh, resolution setting really low or mm -hmm. really coarse, um, then that can be an issue. But if if it's just at a level where the printer can still keep up, you're not mm -hmm. going to have an issue. No, and with like more recent control boards, that is not that much of a problem anymore. Yeah. I don't know. I'm so so. You currently did the um, how's it called Fiberpunk? Um, yeah. Uh, thing. So with remote hosts, it's probably going to be interesting because I know that when I used shitty USB cables on my on my Octoprint. It had problems streaming the G-code to uh, to the printer. And now you could say, yeah, firmware is totally fine. But if you're working with these remote hosts, maybe small movements might become a problem again because the bottleneck might be the USB connection again or the maybe USB to serial converter in the, on the main board. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, the, it's always the, the serial connection in that case, which yeah. is why the, the Fiberpunk uses a SD card dummy and it doesn't actually oh, yeah. stream any G-code through USB. Um, it has an SD card in here and it basically feeds that straight to the printer. It takes, it takes the SD card from the printer when it wants to write mm -hmm. file to it, when it wants to write files to it. And then when you start a print, um, it gives that SD card back to the printer, and all it does through USB is say, hey, print this file from the SD card. Okay. That's all it does. And I think that is a, a solution that works is, uh, on the performance side. But, of course, there are some implications like not being able to upload G-codes while the printer is doing something. Mm -hmm. Because then the SD card is like physically attached to the printer, and you can't yeah. have two hosts writing to the same card. Yeah, yeah interesting. So... so. 
Yeah, it's it's workarounds for for that exact problem, right? Um, not having enough bandwidth to transfer like really fine G code internally. If you have G two G three arcs in G code, um, if I remember correctly, those just get translated to segments as well. Um, that is a, a setting in Marlin where you can set how fine that it that becomes, but the firmware does it. It's not every arc segment needing to be transferred through USB or on an SD card. Well, you have a stepper motor. S stepper motor already means that you need to do discretization in, in some way. Right. But yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so. cool. Good, good that that's released. Um, arcs, etc. It's It's always nice to, to see stuff released. It's always nice to see code build on other code. Um, and then eventually we're just going to see everything melt back together into one big engine. Um, like, I think Cura also had that once, right? Where it was like two different branches and then they... Oh, I might be mixing up things here. Okay, anyways, moving on. <laughs> moving on, but, but staying at um, kinematics and yeah. main boards and think li things like that. You were thinking about building a robot arm. Yes, so that was one of the things that I like played with the idea um once i got the studio here or actually before i got the studio here i wanted to build some sort of robotic camera system um and in, in the old studio because it was a basement room i was just gonna have like a, a rope my frame is too small a robot wall basically where it had like large z-axis and x-axis mm -hmm. and then like some slider that can come out um that can kind of work its way into my set and kind of get all the different camera angles the problem is that the ceiling here is six meters tall so i can't really do that so i've been looking into like industrial robot arms and stuff and quick side note here why i why this this kind of kicked off and why i've been obsessing with robot arms and cycloidal gearboxes and kinematics um elephant robotics reached out to me um they're chinese robot robots company um, they make the, the, my cobot, my palletizer, which are like very light duty robot arms. Um, they were like, Hey, can we work together? And I was like, yeah, I mean, I've got an application for like putting a camera on it, putting a 3d printing tool head on it. Do you have anything that could work for that? Where we have like 300, 400 grams of payload and maybe like a medium range of motion and all that. And they were like, yeah, yeah. Mm cool, we can send you the uh, Mycoba 320, which is a one kilogram payload and I think 600, 500 millimeters, so somewhere like in a, in a medium work range uh, thing. And it was like, yeah, sounds cool. It has Python supports and um, you can do all sorts of, of easy stuff with it and it don't need to learn whole new uh, industrial control units. Looks good. And they were like, yeah, okay, uh, we're going to send you the Mycoba 280. I was like, hold on, that's not what we what we talked about. <laughs> and if we look at the 280, it is literally like six RC servos and a Raspberry Pi <laughs> and a couple of injection molded parts. And um, by the way, YouTube channel recommendation Skyantific, uh, fantastic channel. Uh, he has a video on that robot, and you can just see like it's exactly what you'd imagine six RC uh, servos doing. You you have a move command, and it's like. <laughs> <laughs> and it bounces around and it, it it has a 250 gram payload though honestly if you put any weight on it you can see like you, you put like 100 grams on it and it sags by 5 centimeters mm. yeah. they charge 700 bucks for that thing 
Okay. 700 bucks for a couple RC servers and a Raspberry Pi, which is obscene. Um, mm. So I was like, no, sorry, I can't work with that. I'm <laughs> like, uh-uh. Um, so after that, I've just been looking into, I mean, Scientific, like, again, fantastic resource on just uh, robot actuators that you can get um, ready-made. But the thing is that, so robot joints essentially have the requirement of being rigid and high torque. Um, and then, of course, if you want like stuff that can like take your head off, you also want it to be fast. But I, d- I don't care for that too much. I, I would rather have a robot that is kind of slow. So the requirement is lots of torque, rigidity, which means you need a gearbox. You need something to gear down torque from a motor, which typically spins fast and has little torque, to something that spins more slowly and has lots of torque. That's what a gearbox does. Um, and one of the cool ones is cycloidal gearboxes. James Bruton has been building those for a while. Mm. Um, they look extremely cool. They work really well. And maybe that's just something that I can I can try out and just go step by step. Say, hey, let's let's build a cycloidal gearbox. Let's go through the through the engineering process because you can build them a lot better than than what James does. Not that I want to discredit him here, but um, you can optimize them for three D printing mm-hmm. a lot better. Um, and just see if I can make up an actuator here. And the cool thing is, it's not that it would end there because with the tools we have from 3D printing today, you can go a lot further than just building a single gearbox. RepRap firmware, do it 3D, um, is now implementing uh, robot kinematics, which is fantastic. Um, so, I don't, I, one of the core things with robot arms is that yeah you can control each motor individually but like depending on how your axes are rotated Mm. um your your tool head is going to move different amounts like you know so you you need to do reverse or inverse kinematics which is a is a whole section for itself and repair firmware apparently is is able to do that at some point um where you just say hey this is how my robot arm is built and please move the effector to this position at that rotation and it just like does it so i'm just i'm just fascinated by by how much this stuff has progressed how accessible it is yeah Mm -hmm. do it even has a a motor driver board that has encoder support and brake support which is exactly Mm -hmm. what you need for robot arms yeah um i could stay within the like the 3d printing ecosystem uh, use NEMA 17, NEMA 23 steppers, use, use do it 3D, RepRap firmware, use something I know um, and build a robot that two goals, at least is going to be fast and accurate enough to do some 3D printing, maybe not with a 0.4 nozzle, maybe with a 0.8 <laughs> um, and also is smooth enough to carry a camera especially for live streams or for time lapses you know, doing like crazy 3D time lapses around the machine like I've it's just a whole new world that I've been diving into the last couple yeah. of days, and it's I, I, I enjoy that. I enjoy that a lot. Just um, learning about new stuff, learning what's possible, and learning how things click together. Yeah. So when I last time dove a little bit deeper, deeper into robotics, when I I don't know somehow watched a couple of MKBHD videos. Oh yeah. Who also have their camera robot and they're doing. Those really beautiful shots with that. Um, and I also thought about, yeah, w- what's what's 
available in that direction that is accessible for me and would that be an option to make really beautiful shots with it probably a bit overkill but just i mean the, sure <laughs> the precision and the beauty of the moves of of a robot arm is just just amazing and yeah. even professional ones are not that expensive anymore if you if you're taking a look at what a cheap kuka arm or from one of the even even cheaper knockoff brands cost they are not that expensive anymore uh so they're getting more expensive of course controlling them is yeah probably not the easiest thing uh but in the end it's doable um, so. the the big challenge with the kuka arms is safety because Ooh, they yes. will kill you Literally, if you're in the wrong spot and run the wrong command, they will completely smash you to pieces uh, and there's no escape. So typically those those kook arms that you can get for, I've, I've looked into those too. You can get them for like a grand or two grand if you get like one from the 80s. Um, <laughs> you have to pick it up from Hungary, but yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, those don't have any safety features. So they are intended to be run in like a complete cage um, with a laser curtain or, or some way of safety where as soon as you get near the robot, it shuts off. Yeah. Um, so that is the big downside to those. They don't have any sensing for how much force they're pushing at the time. Mm. So at the time, so I guess the, the the camera robots that you see, they're being used in a very controlled environment. I'm not sure if I'm up for that. If I want to take that level of responsibility mm. for me and for whoever else might be <laughs> near the robot. Um, so what you really need is a cobot, um, and yeah. that is that is those uh, robots that have force sensing on on the mm. joints or even load cells um, in the mm. um, in the connection pieces that can yeah. force how much force you that can sense how much force you're putting yeah. on on the effector at any point, and it's just going to stop or reduce its speed. Um, yeah. And those are a bit newer; those are a bit more expensive, and you typically don't get them with like significant payloads like i don't think i could put my a7s3 on it because that thing weighs two kilograms with everything um because you know two kilograms of force like are you going to detect the difference between like the dynamic dynamic forces of acceleration plus the weight of the camera versus somebody's arm getting sheared off that becomes a very thin line there so yeah cool project i i would really enjoy uh watching that process and especially if if you're going to do the engineering on the on the critical parts yeah it's that there, there are robotic arms out there um but they are engineered for slightly different use cases than than what i'd be going for did do you know the uh the youtube channel from uh jeremy fielding yes yeah yeah so he also recently built one he's the um, for anyone who who doesn't know him, he is one of the, the I guess engineers that works together with um, Des Dustin Dustin from Smarter Every Day, and uh, for example, built his uh, the the pressurized air cannon. So oh, I did I didn't know that's that. How, that's how I got okay. to know uh, Jeremy. I just saw his videos on on my Twitter feed and was like. That that's how, that looks like cool stuff that he's doing there. Yeah. Yeah. So he built one, but that I, I think he's doing like industrial welding with that, and and yeah. a bit overkill for what I'm trying to do. Um, yeah. Really, all I need is you know, if you say we're engineering for 500 grams worth of payload, I can put a ZV1 on there. I can put a you know a Hamera or a Bontic whatever on there, and it's going to print. And I want it to be rigid. 
that's I think that's going to be the biggest challenge if I 3D print gearboxes. Um, not having well backlash, I think I can tune out by just changing tolerances. Um, but rigidity, plastic flexes, right? Yeah. Um, so we're going to see. We're going to see. I'm I'm just playing with the thought right now. Uh, and I'm looking at what's possible here, and I'm I'm I'm, tr- I'm finding pieces that would work. <laughs> cool. So, as far as 3D printing tool heads go, um, moving one step down on the tool head chain, um, E3D's Obsidian nozzles. It looks like they are finally. Well, let's just say it looks like they finally exist. Um, so, the 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 bullet point I put in here is do you still care about E3D's eternal Obsidian teasers? Because to me, it feels like they've been teasing Obsidian for so long. For So, um, what's it called? Revo. Revo has been announced in September of 2021. And like now, 10 months later, um, we finally get the Obsidian nozzles um, that... I, I, as far as I believe, have been promised from day one, where it was like, hey, yeah, right now we only have um, the brass nozzles. I know that's a drawback, but we're working on something that's going to get rid of that drawback. Mm-hmm. Um, so the question is, like, could they have... Because honestly, I'm, I'm kind of tired of seeing Obsidian teasers. Um, I'm tired of seeing it like announced and like not existing. And I'm just like, okay, get, come on, just... Take a step back, uh, say we're having some delays, uh, it's going to be there eventually, give us a timeline, but don't be like, hey, this thing is right around the corner, this thing is right, it's, it's going to happen, I promise, it's going to be there. Uh, what's, what, what's, what's your position on that? Yeah, well, so we both made videos on that, and, and one of the biggest complaints from many viewers was, yeah, this is not an option for me at the moment, because there aren't any abrasion-resistant nozzles because people seem to use them quite a bit. Well, I, I, I don't think it's that they use them. It's just that they would like to have the option to exactly. use them. And when they, when they add a Revo on their printer, they, there aren't any third-party nozzles, so they're stuck with that. So this printer ain't going to work for abrasive materials. So they kind of had to make sure that people realize that abrasion-resistant nozzles are still a thing and they're going to be there at some point. But I feel with you that it came annoy- uh, that it became annoying after, after a while. Well, I already told... No. It's, it's, it's blue ball symptom. Like you, you, you get teased for so long and it, at some point it's just like, come on, <laughs> I don't care anymore. It's, I, I know it's going to happen, but like the, the excitement is over. Mm-hmm. So I was really looking forward to seeing the nozzles with with my own eyes at Murph, but the problem was that the whole booth from E3D was stuck at customs. Yeah. So they did not have anything from the not released uh, things at Murph. Did Repcord not bring anything? Only released stuff. But okay. They they weren't able. So as as far as I know, so they were asking people from the community about, hey, do you have a Himera installed on your printer? Can you can we borrow that for the weekend and yeah. things like that? So, um, yeah, um, 
so I was I was kind of upset, but I talked to the guys and I don't know. Um, so the thing is, they they wrote me last week that they are sending out hopefully review units or or finished units, and they are hopefully about to release them. And they told me that I I gonna have my set of obsidian this week, but. If that's true, I don't know. If that's final hardware, I hope. Um, and yeah, they, well, at least they told me that they wanted to release it now in summer and that they are even working on high flow for hopefully shortly after that. But yeah, so far, if they're not having them in, in store, it's just a mystery. Yeah. And I unfortunately I don't have any inside scoop uh, that I could share about these. So, so I mean they've they've just recently shipped the first set of um, of obsidians. Um, that's what they've they've shown on Twitter. They've they've shipped it to I believe a customer. Um, okay. Oh yes. Yeah. So I think they're they're ready to ship soon, but. Hopefully. That's been the that's been the implication, uh, or that's been applied for, for the last month. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm. Okay, but apparently, uh, this time for real, it's going to happen. I swear, it's pink, pinky promise. Pinky promise. Cool. Uh, last topic: STL subscription. You dug that out. I I haven't heard. I had never heard from them so far. Yeah, me neither. So this was just something that flew across my timeline. Um, Stoolflix. STL Flix, um, obvious play on Netflix, um, which is a, a company where you can um, where you can borrow uh, VHS tapes over the weekend. You pay as a subscription fee, and you always get like um, you know you, you can get different subscriptions where you can borrow one or two VHSs. Uh, you turn and you can pick up a new one. Or did I miss something there for the last for the last decade? Um, digital now. Oh right! Oh right! Yeah, yeah they, they do DVDs now. They they, 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 they ship come over your phone line. Really? I th I thought I, I, I thought you, you order them and then you, you send mm -hmm. back the DVDs. You don't have to yeah. go to the store anymore. Yeah, I still remember the time when was that over Amazon or was it already? Yeah, when Amazon was still sending out like movie rentals. Did they have rentals at some point? I, yes, I do not did. know about that. They did. So we, and that was, that was probably like 15, 20 years ago. Do, do you remember um, when Amazon was still selling books? Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> I think I, 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 I checked recently. I think I, I, I ordered my first book on Amazon 20, 22 years ago or something like that. Has it been that long? Wow. Yes, it has. Yeah, okay, okay, kids. Uh, here you can see that the two grandpas yeah. uh, <laughs> reminiscing about the old times when the internet was still new. Okay. <laughs> uh, Anyways, uh, yeah, what's STL Flix? Uh, so apparently, I mean, I've not seen more than anyone else has. Um, STL Flix is a platform that intends to sell you a subscription to download. STL files, high quality curated. I don't know if it's curated or if it's exclusive uh, models that are designed for that platform. Um, it looks like they've got a, a mix of, of everything in here. So I'm seeing some uh, some flexible dragons. I'm seeing some high detailed sculpts and busts. Um, 
But basically, it is, you know, the, the idea is $9.90 a month uh, for personal use or $19.90 a month if you want to sell uh, prints, which isn't, I mean, that is a killer deal. Uh, 20 bucks a month uh, for like unlimited uh, selling of parts. Uh, that, that, that makes print farms worth it. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a subscription where, as far as I understand it, you can download as much as you want. Uh, you can access the entire library. You can, you can download the parts. You can print them. Um, and my understanding of that would be some of the uh, monthly membership fee goes to the creators of that. Um, whether it is uh, through like a fixed deal where they where they contract uh, designers where it's like hey can you design five parts for us we're gonna pay you x amount or through a part of that fee um but yeah it's a it's a way to not have to purchase or or, or subscribe to individual designers to get their designs their higher quality designs but to just have like a scattergun approach where it's just like here's here's 10 bucks give me something yeah, and you, you had a you had a cool point about that being a, a viable way to, to support designers, right? <laughs> or did you? Not? I don't know if I re- if I re- already uh, forgot that, but um, so maybe you can help me out okay. there in a bit. So the thing I, f- I find interesting about that is, I think that can only work if that subscription fee is worth the 10 bucks that uh, 10 bucks that you're spending so yeah. uh, you need designers that can do those 3d models and uh, many of the popular designers like wexter and all of the other ones chaos cortex um, many of their models had been on on patreon before um, so yeah, I don't know if such a service can really work until you have like big names on that platform and probably even exclusively. And uh, that that would be a big step for for a creator to say, okay, I'm I'm not like distributing my models over Patreon anymore. I basically kill my Patreon, and now you guys can get all of my models on stl flicks or something like yeah that. um i mean the current currently the model is like like you said um patron or some designers also have a shop set up where you can buy the uh what's the what's the deadpool burst um uh yes yeah exactly uh where you can buy models from from him um which are super high detail and they're like three or five bucks for uh, per piece um so you buy those individually um, or going through Etsy, um, etc. The alternative, of, of course, is, is through Patreon, but Patreon doesn't have the, that shop system where you, we're saying, hey, I want to buy this model and you pay you five bucks once and that's yep. over with. This pay, Patreon already is sort of a subscription service to a designer, right? Yep. Um, but, of course, the, um, the issue that Patreon is running into is that people see a model they want that model they don't have a, a way to buy that model so they subscribe and they immediately cancel um mm. i think there's now been like a, a bit of a change in in patreon's terms where yeah right right uh, it lets you 
set the option to immediately charge them for the month because typically yeah. you'd, you'd get immediately access to, to all the files and you could cancel and you wouldn't spend anything so they've now gotten rid of that um but what if you what if you just want or what if somebody just wants access to the entire library um subscribes for a month downloads everything and it's like yeah that's uh, thank you for that goodbye that's kind of a uh, that's uh, that's something that's going to be an issue once the library gr- grows larger and i've seen similar approaches with um story blocks formerly audio blocks and video mm-hmm. blocks um they had the exact same model where you have a library of stock footage and stock vi- well, images video audio and you had a monthly fee uh you could download as mm, up to a reasonable limit as much as you wanted and then you could use those files forever actually so okay what they also did was like hey we're going to impose some reasonable download limits um and i think it's like 10 downloads a day for them now um somewhere in that neighborhood the question is is that something that stl flux would have to impose as well where it's not you get a full flat rate for 10 bucks but it's yeah you get 15 downloads a month uh, for 10 bucks similar to like stock footage sites now have like mm. uh, credit systems where you have a mm. subscription and you get a fixed amount of credits mm. um this might definitely be an option but that might put some off um the other way to do it is just to feed that subscription service like month per month per month with interesting models and this should be the way to go true but why why would you want to subscribe continuously then why why wouldn't i just you know get one month now download everything wait six months then get another month um that there's there needs to be some incentive um because people are impatient um because uh in in six months time the articul- uh, articulated dragon is not the big hip thing anymore then it's the i don't know articulated elephant or true who knows so um you you do have the incentive to to add interesting and new models every month that that people are staying with the service that they can print the models uh, as soon as they come out and as soon as they are interesting and as soon as yeah. they see them on their favorite I don't know social media channel. So, yeah. so I think something like that can work, but I don't know if that's gonna work if those models are all from unknown names, even though they might be good. I don't know. And so you're saying that there needs to be a hype uh, behind the uh, behind the models. Exactly. So yeah. they probably will have to spend a a ton of like ad money to make them popular, kind of yeah. in a similar way as I think Fangs did and is still kind of doing um, to establish their brand with uh, yeah lots of features on on, on popular channels and things things like that uh but otherwise it's, it's going to be a hard business yeah it, it only works at scale it doesn't work if you just have 10 subscribers and have to pay no. 50 designers that that doesn't work out no. i mean and the question is maybe maybe one last thing i'm, I'm currently just seeing like an org model on that website uh you 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 can't just contract a sculpting designer on fiverr and tell him okay i want a model of an org no that model also needs to be 
nicely 3D printable. So you need to have designers that do have experience with additive manufacturing. Where have you seen that before? <laughs> it, it was some platform that, that had a similar model where it's like, hey, we have all these high quality designs, but half of them were not optimized for printing. Well, that's, I think, kind of a problem with, uh, if you compare GrabCAD to my mini factory, for example, my mini factory says right. all of our models are 3D printable. GrabCAD has a huge library of super detailed parts and, and assemblies, but they're, of course, their primary, uh, their uh, primary goal is, is not the additive manufacturing community or 3D printing community, but uh, you can download a ton of good models there, but they're not optimized for that process. Um, and I think it's going to be the same thing here. If you have somebody that can do great scalps of models, but you need a ton of support, that's the thing why the models by Wexter, Eastman, and and all of the other Eastman. guys, Chaos Cortex, yes. Eastman, uh, that's the, that pool. why they are so good. They are not only looking nice, but they're 3D printable without support structure. Yep. Yeah. Um, so really, I think the, the the value in services like this, um, to me, would be being able to support the designers of the models that you actually print. Um, so I don't know if, if, if I keep printing the, the models from one person and I really like those and... You know, just just having this this yeah. like low effort, low barrier, um, automated way where it's like, hey, I download this and they get the majority of my subscription fee. That would be cool if it works that way. That's always the big discussion with um, things like Spotify, for example, because Spotify works like that. You spend your ten bucks, and all of the money from everyone. Uh, gets into a big pot and then at the end of the month uh, they are paying that out just if somebody has a, a million listens they get way more than just someone who has 10 yeah. listens but if you are a person who's just listening to that person with 10 listens um, your money is still getting distributed to to the artists that you don't even listen to. And something like that would be interesting for such a service right here because if how, you would how say, do you figure okay, that out? But, that's in, but, but, but that's easy for everyone. So for example, if you subscribe to the service, every month they are tracking which models you are downloading and then they distribute your share that they are paying out to creators under the creators that made the models that you downloaded yeah yeah but so if you but uh, what, what were you saying with spotify i think i think that does work as intended um sure your, your money gets distributed to everyone else too but by listening to that one artist like proportionally everyone else's money also goes to them so it, it that, that does work out the the thing with 3d printing though is you you you're not downloading the model every time you want to print it um you download it once and then you might have it sitting on your hard drive and you print 5,000 copies of it. Um, but somebody else has like 10 varieties of a model and uh, you download all 10 and then they get like 80, 91% of your revenue and mm -hmm. the one artist that he printed 5,000 times only get, gets 9%. So yeah. it's, it's having, having that sort of tracking really um, for models where it's a fair distribution that's that's tough mm. 
don't know, maybe maybe you could integrate it with a slicer and just say, hey, this, this slicer kind of has the backbone to mm. the service and just monitors what you're printing. But then again, G-codes, it's tough. It Being, being fair is tough. Um, from a... So to, to move, moving on from that, the, the other thing that, that I'm thinking about is like, hey, as a user, um, do you want to to have to pay or to, to have to subscribe to like tons of different artists and wiggle, wiggle, um, juggle that um, being like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm subscribing to this guy, but I also want to print from this. But now I'm like racking up 50 bucks worth of subscriptions every month. Mm-hmm. Uh, having a way to kind of distribute a fixed amount of like, hey, I want to print stuff. I want to get cool models mm-hmm. and I want the platform to decide who I'm who I'm distributing that to. I think that that can really lower the barrier of entry to paying for models. Yeah. Especially compared to individual subscriptions, maybe one-time purchases are are easier for that. But I think such a system can only work if you have a ton ton of subscribers because otherwise you don't have, well, enough revenue that you can distribute under the other creators so it's gonna be interesting um yeah we'll see we'll see um and i think they haven't shared any release time or something like that yet uh stl flicks stl flicks so they're saying they have uh, weekly launches a new drop every week with multiple different models so at least two uh per week yeah did they already so did they already launch They're, they're live, yeah. Ah, they're live. You, you can oh. you can subscribe to them. Uh, I think you can even okay. browse the model library. Okay. Yeah, they have articulated uh, <laughs> models. They have these look like the these look like knockoffs of the actual what's it yeah. called dragon thingy uh, home decor collections, tech looking prints, statues. They they've got a couple models yet, and they've got a coming soon uh, section with chess sets. Um, Viking, orc, dwarf, Japanese, elf, and Greek um, themes. So, yeah, I guess right now you can you can subscribe to them. Um, I tried finding the actual license text um, because, especially if you're saying, "Hey, we have uh, a license to sell physical prints," that really depends on the fine print, how much that is worth, whether mm-hmm. that's like a, a perpetual license or just during the uh, time of why the subscription is active or sell what does that mean um it would have been nice to find that but i've I've not found that yet um but yeah they are live you you, you can subscribe to that okay i know that's cool so maybe we have subscribers under the listeners so if if anyone if anyone checked that out yet please let us know Yeah, and okay, let's finish this out with one question um, from the community that is on YouTube, I believe. Yep. From Super Smash Sam, um, asking about uh, PHA filaments. Have you tried or do you plan to try PHA filaments? It's a biopolymer made from bacterial fermentation that has only recently been gaining a lot, a lot of attention. Uh, PHA filaments are starting to be easily sourceable and affordable. Its main appeal is to be biodegradable. Um, so the question is, is it easy to print? Does it have good mechanical properties? And if so, it could have 
it could be a more environmentally friendly option than other plastics. And Stefan, you have actually tried it, and I have too yes. in a way, but not in its pure form. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so currently, I am aware of two vendors that sell PHA. So like more or less pure PHA filament. And that is Colorfab with their all PHA filament. And there is Regen, which is, I think, only sold at um, a Canadian filament uh, reseller, uh, filaments.ca. Mm -hmm. um, and they're also claiming that this is pure PHA filament. And uh, yeah. D different to what we have seen on the market. So from my experience, it is more challenging to print than uh, as with PLA. It has a bit of a warping tendency. Um, sometimes it flows interestingly, hmm. but so far the material is... Oh, wait, I have a part right here. Huh. Yeah, so that's, that's the new pure PHA. We used to <laughs> what we used to have is actually a PLA PHA blend. Um, so we've we've kind of been printing with PLA PHA for a while. And that has been Colorfab um, that has been making PLA PHA blends, but not pure, just yep. as a as a mix. So the reason why they added PHA to the PLA filament is just to make it less brittle, and the reason why they didn't make any pure PHA filament because PHA is also semi-crystalline material, likes to crystallize out during printing, which causes warping and everything, but also has a really na nasty post-crystallization behavior. So if you just leave the part mm. sitting somewhere for, for a week, it will get brittle over time and just fall, fall apart. Okay. Um, so I guess they had to f at first solve the challenge of uh, post-crystallization to get that under control that um, the parts don't crystallize out over time. I think even the glass transition temperature of PHA is below zero degrees Celsius. So you always have this. Right. Um, the possibility to, that something like that can happen. Um, but Colorfab and, and obviously also like uh, Regen, they seem to have uh, solved that problem. Um, yeah, this is... Print of myself uh, printed with the Colorfab PHA filament. Um, as I said, it is not the hardest to print. It's not the easiest to print, but it does have kind of a nice texture and feeling to it. At first, I thought it feels quite a bit like a um, hard TPU and the filament itself feels really soft, but in its printed form, it feels very similar to something like an ABS, but it doesn't smell, it doesn't need a heated print platform. Um, it, yeah, it has a bit of a warping tendency um, and it, it does biodegrade. You can, I, I can link that below right here. I did some, some uh, composting tests with the PHA filament after my last composting test and that stuff really was almost gone after four weeks on my compost pile. And not just like breaking apart, you could really see that it was eaten by bacteria and, and things like that. 
Right, so it's that that's actually one of the, the big claims. I'm just trying to find the um the data sheet of um the all PHA which I have, but I need a comparable PLA that I want to compare this to. And thankfully Colorfab do have the full um data sheets here. It's sending me stuff. Yeah, I think it has Young's modulus of two thousand one hundred per their data sheet, which is in the range of PETG and ABS, uh, tensile strength is nice. It does have a really nice layer adhesion. I would not have thought that because often these, um, I don't know, engineered materials and being good for a certain application materials, they have bad layer adhesion. But even though I didn't like tune anything right here and it's printed at 190 degrees Celsius, that thing holds together quite well. Um, yeah. So looking at the, uh, Stefan, I think the WhatsApp message went to me just now. Oh, shit. <laughs> Sorry, podcast listeners. Um, if you thought you, you got a WhatsApp message there. Um, looking at the data sheet of uh, pure, all PHA, um, pure PHA and their PLA PHA, both from ColorFab, so the value should be comparable. Um, the pure PHA is a much weaker material. So yield strength, um, and tensile strength both are significantly lower, um, about a third less to 50% less than the PLA-PHA blend. Um, the modulus of elasticity, so how rigid the material is, is also a bit lower, so it's a bit softer. Um, but it's not significant. It's not like a full flexible material. It's, it's more along the lines of just, you know, PTG, ABS, somewhere in, in that neighborhood. Interestingly, heat deflection temperature, um, 153 degrees for PHA. Okay. So that is that is pretty good. Um, it is not listed for their PLA PHA. But it's probably um, around like 60 degrees Celsius. Yeah. So in that regard, it is pretty good. Yeah. Um, anything else I'm seeing? Yeah, go ahead. One of the big problems with the material is that at least the one from Colorfab is quite expensive. It's 50 bucks for a 750 gram spool. The Regen uh, material, uh, that was quite cheap. I bought the roll for 28 euros for, um, for 750 grams shipping import taxes and ups fees i think yeah, now yeah. made it cost me a uh, hundred euros per spool but anyways i just wanted to try it out um so the, the problem is pha has a very small market share at the moment um yeah I th it's just in the range of i don't know two two three percent of um all of the biomaterials and most of that is probably in a mix of PLA, PHA. Maybe, or different applications. Um, so it's it's way more expensive. And in order to tune the properties, you need to uh, modify the material. And that uh, modification process, that compounding process, of course, again, uh, costs. So it all ends up in, in a more expensive material. I wouldn't say that this material is perfect at the moment and i especially if 
if I have big parts, they tend to warp on the building platform and sometimes don't stick and sometimes it, it's sticking way too well. But, but it, it doesn't need to be, right? It doesn't need to be like the perfect material because we have other materials that do that job. And um, it's the first. So I want to promote that material for the reason that I find that it is a step in the right direction. I read a ton of papers and, and write-ups on, on PHA filament and it's especially compared to PLA a material that is really biodegradable, it is really home compostable it is it, um, it biodegrades also very quickly in, um, in the sea in, in uh, yeah. uh, sweet, sweet water what's, what's in, yeah, regular in, sweet water in your rivers, pond yeah. next door um, so, and it, if you're not using additives that are harmful and, and things like that, yeah, it just breaks that. down to biomass. So, yeah. So, um, f fat cells. Um, so this is a, it's basically, yeah, oil lipids, um, that yeah. this is based on, um, PLA is more of a, of a sugary material as far as I understand it. Um, but yeah, it's, like I said, it doesn't need to be perfect. Um, it is a material with a very with with one very specific property and we yeah. need those materials we have so many that are like one trick ponies but it's good that they are one trick ponies because you know you have applications that have different jobs yeah. um what what i would be interested in is how much does the pla break down in regular use like if you have have parts that you touch with your fingers mm -hmm. you're always going to introduce uh, new bacterial cultures yeah. to that material is that gonna like eventually just gonna fall apart or, or abrade or, or leave you with like a greasy layer that's like half composted on on the surface um that would be really interesting otherwise like if if it if it can't do that if it can't be something that you can handle and, and use regularly is maybe there's some other stuff where you can use it or you add a just use it on, on internal parts that are not mm. going to see a lot of, of use a lot of fingery attention um, yeah. but yeah but I, I guess that is the big challenge with polymers so if, if you have packing material you want that packing material to be uh, to be blocking uh, uh, oxygen from the outside uh, you don't want that the packing itself falls apart while the for example food is still on the inside on the yeah. other hand uh, you want materials that maybe do biodegrade after a while but how can you i don't know trigger a material of now you can start degenerating uh, and you're not in use anymore um yeah pha point. can be a replacement maybe for for a lot of applications but there are still applications in the end where this is not the right material because it you maybe want to use it in an environment uh, where you have the bacteria and and yeah. things that can break that thing apart. But if this material becomes more and more popular, I could see it as an alternative and an alternative that doesn't do as much green washing as PLA, for example, I, does. So I, I was going to say like, hey, if you if you now have if you now produce plastics polymers pha um still i mean it's still a polymer but it's like eco-based and recycle 
that is designed to be thrown away, that is designed to have an end of life that literally is garbage, um, is that really better than a plastic that is getting recycled? Um, but then again, that the point is like plastic isn't really getting recycled. That's really just, exactly. <laughs> that's, that is, that is the greenwashing point there. Um, even if it has like all the fancy recycling symbols on there and, you know, we have the Grüne Punkt, uh, collection systems and stuff, most of it is getting burned. If, if we're being honest here, the only thing that exactly. is really getting recycled is like maybe plastic bottles, mm. um, because those are very pure PET, mm. but everything else just goes to waste. Um, to be honest, I also wouldn't recommend that you know throw all your 3D prints on your compost or on your I, I don't know in your garden uh, and and let it break down. But the the beauty of this material is that if it for any reason whatsoever it ends up either in the na in nature or even in a landfill, it will break down quite quickly and will not leave you with harmful substances in the end. So it's is i wouldn't say a solution to the microplastic problem but since it doesn't produce any microplastics it's an alternative that doesn't do that and uh it won't be there after a thousand years on a landfill yeah so yeah it is not a perfect solution but i would really like to see more development in that direction to to bring the prices down and maybe to even tune the properties in a better way you just said in the beginning um like the first pla filaments that that you use they probably did not have the performance level as our plas have yeah. nowadays but the reason why there was development is because it was used a ton and there was a necessity to to make a better material and a better usable material this is a start this is Colorfab's uh, first PHA material. Uh, this is Regen's first PHA material. And if users buy the material and, and use it for certain applications and give feedback what works and works not, and they do have the cash flow and the interest in the material, there I'm sure we'll see more of that. And it's one of it's a really promising promising candidate. Yeah. As I said, it's the parts feel good. Yeah. Like I said, alternatives, always good. Um, choice is always good. Um, it's it's the same thought as, as with the uh, Formlabs Fuse 1 that we talked about earlier. Um, more choice is usually good for the customer. So yes. it's nice that we have it. So thumbs up to Colorfab for, for bringing this uh, to the market and to who, who was the other one? Uh, Regen. Regen for, for also doing that. Unless, yeah. unless like PLA, uh, PHA turns out to be like a, a material that releases two tons of methane for producing one kilogram of, of uh, <laughs> filament. I hope it doesn't, but... <laughs> no, as I yeah. said, there, PHA is not a material that is new on the market. It has been used for, yeah. for, for decades, uh, but just not in 3D printing. So, yeah. yeah. Cool. 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 So that's it for today. Yeah. If you guys have any questions for the next episode of the podcast, who's hopefully, who hope, which hopefully will release in, in two weeks of time, then yeah, put them down in the comments, uh, tweet to us at the melt zone or even write us an email. Do we, and have, a, do we have an email address listed? I think we do on the website somewhere. Yeah. 
you, you're gonna find a way to contact us um but youtube comments are usually the best thing yeah, to get really in touch does. with us if you want to support us there are individual links to our um patrons down in the description and yeah thanks for your time and we hope to see you in the next one thank you for your time stefan and goodbye bye bye